0: And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome
1: to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I am one of your hosts, Bill.
2: And I'm Mikkel.
1: And we are excited to have you with us this morning. Mikkel, you just got back from a trip. Where did you Where did you go?
2: We went to Kanab and Bryce Canyon.
1: Kanab and Bryce Canyon. And a lot of fun?
2: Yeah, I've never been to either of those places. Kanab had some really cool um, sand caves and petroglyphs and just a ton of... Really cool hikes, and then Bryce was also beautiful. I've never been there either, so awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's fun to get away. It's fun to have trips. It's fun to to take some time and go do something before hitting the grind again. Um, I don't know if you noticed or not. The world's gotten pretty crazy. Like we thought COVID nineteen was insane. Um, We thought living in the middle of even a minor pandemic was a little crazy, and then and then some cop decided to put his knee down on somebody's throat and kill them.
2: Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's, I, it's crazy.
1: I'd love to hear your thought. What are your thoughts on this whole George Floyd thing? let's just start with the specific incident of just George Floyd and the treatment of him.
2: It's horrific, especially when, um, somebody posted the words that he said in the process of his being on the ground. And it's, I, 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 yeah, no words. It's just horrific. Him begging for his mama and repeatedly saying over and over again, "I can't breathe. Please stop." It's I don't I don't understand how somebody can do that to another human being.
1: Yeah, and the thing that the thing that strikes me with this incident is that, um, regardless of what this man's done, and the accusation is that he used a fake twenty dollar bill to buy stuff, which now, so now yeah, and now we're also in the debate of again, whether he is a a murderer who's being apprehended. We don't have the right to abuse somebody, right? And right. and and then there's also like, let's back up from that. We don't know whether he knew it was a fake twenty dollar bill. Obviously, it was good enough to be passed along to the store for them to take it originally. So maybe he maybe he came into contact with this twenty dollar bill too, and and didn't know what it was, and and so you're in this space of having to make a lot of assumptions, and even if you make all the leaps and jumps to this guy is just the most horrendous human being on the planet, there's still no mm. right to do what happened. No, um, no. I was wa- I was watching David Chappelle last night. And I want to play a little soundbite because the title of David Chappelle's special he re- this guy released this is. Produced by Netflix, but it got released on YouTube for free. And the title of this special is 846, meaning the mm. uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that that police officer had his knee on this man's neck. And I want to play a little soundbite from this. And uh, I think it really impresses upon the listeners just the amount of time that's passed um, that this man died. In like
3: 1993. I'm. I, I'm not sure what year it was, but I was in LA. I had smoke joint, and I was watching the movie Apocalypse Now. It was like just after four o'clock in the morning, and what, what, what later would become to known the Northridge earthquake happened. It felt like it started in my apartment. You know, I'm from east of the Mississippi. Uh, on this side, we don't know what earthquakes are about. I got to tell you something, man. Excuse me for burping. <laughs> this shit was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Uh, a lot of things went through my mind. I was I was like not nagged, but you know what I mean. Just walk, just chilling my boxes. Uh, I put my clothes on. I found a, my weed and some uh, a pipe and some and a lighter and and some money and my keys. All these things and while the earthquake is happening while I'm. Sp- experiencing what an earthquake is the first time and I was certain that I would might very possibly die and matter of fact I remember I made a point not to scream just in case I lived I wouldn't have to remember myself being vocally terrified but I forgave myself for being terrified that earthquake couldn't have been more than 35 seconds this man kneeled on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Can you imagine that? This kid thought he was gonna die. He knew he was gonna die. He called for his mother. He called for his dead mother. I've only seen that once before in my life. My father, on his deathbed, called for his grandmother. When I watched that tape, I understood this man knew he was gonna die. People watched it. People filmed it. And for some reason that I still don't understand, all these fucking police had their hands in their pockets. Who are you talking to? What are you signifying? That you can kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and feel like you wouldn't get the wrath of God. That's what is happening right now it's not for a single cop it's for all of it fucking
1: all of it eight minutes and 40 46 seconds um i am a am uh, a white privileged male Mikkel. when i get pulled over by the police i don't worry i don't think in fact i just figure like they're slowing my day down and um it's just a frustrating thing When you are a black person in this country, when you go out for a walk or a jog, when you drive your car and you get pulled over, when you're just probably paying for something at a convenience store, there has to always be this thought in your head that your life could not only come to an end, it just just may not have value to other people walking around. Um, Eight minutes and 46 seconds of someone kneeling on my neck while I say I can't breathe, while I say that um, I need help, while I say, please let me go, while I say I'm dying, while I say um, my mother's name. Uh Yeah. There's no excuse. And And we've all let this go too long. Here we are. We're 2020 in the fucking United States of America, and we still allow each other at a systemic level. To treat each other differently based on the color of our skin, get, I can't stop all racists, you can't stop all racist. We, we can't eliminate somebody from allowing the KKK to exist. But we sure, as hell, can start putting in reform that stops systemic uh, racism. Um, eight minutes and 46 seconds while a man dies, and this man stops moving, and they just stay there on his neck. What do you think? It's insane.
2: It's insane. It's insane. You know, I, um, my, my grandmother took in foster kids while I was growing up and she had adopted several black kids. And oftentimes they came from really troubled homes and had a lot of abuse and just bad situations. And I remember being, I don't know, I was probably 10 and several of the kids that my grandma had took in were either close to my age or a couple of years older, or some of them were a couple of years younger. And I remember playing one day. um, She had a a big bedroom that with bunk beds and stuff that the girls slept in. And then she had another area um, for the boys and we were playing Barbies or something. And there were kind of two things that stuck out in my mind as a kid that, that I never really quite understood as a kid but now when I think about it it's just it's horrific one no black Barbies existed or or were available for them to play with so we always played with white Barbies and the second thing is that I remember I remember my aunt who was just a couple of years older than me saying that she wished she had my white skin and I, I didn't understand that then I thought she was beautiful and she was fun to play with. And I, I was fascinated with, with her skin and I thought there was nothing wrong with her and I couldn't understand why, why she wanted to be white. But as I've thought of that over the years, no wonder it's horrible.
1: We've, um. As I think about the way the history books are written, you know, when I go back into my childhood and remember going to school and taking history classes, and there is these conversations of how this country was founded and who was involved in that, and um, what what occurred with the Native Americans, what occurred in you know if we fast forward, civil rights and women's right to vote, and the the history books are always polished, and you and I know this well because we've had to deal with, with systems that we belong to being dishonest and telling an inaccurate story. But every David Chappelle in a special last night, <clears throat> one of the quotes that he says, he says, every institution lies. and And that even goes for this great United States of America, right? Like everybody... There is an agenda here, even systemically within our country. And the history books paint the story. They polish the story as to favor white Europeans at every twist and turn. And the story of the uh, disenfranchised really isn't told. It's, It's carefully approached briefly, just so that it can be said that it was talked about. But we really, I never really gathered in what we did to the Native Americans through my history books in school. I never really gathered in what, what the Underground Railroad was to the point where we went to see a play on Harriet Tubman um, about the Underground Railroad. And I literally thought that the Underground Railroad was an Underground Railroad. Like nobody in school up until whatever it was, eighth grade, whatever day, whatever it was, I went to the play. I didn't know what the Underground Railroad was. These stories that we tell are always to make us white people feel better um, and to feel good and to think everything is good and dandy when in reality we have been causing trauma to, um, man, I mean, let's name the list. You have um, the, the homosexual community. You have the transgender community. You've got uh, the African-American community. You've got the female community. Um, Anybody who's different, we we claim to live in the greatest country on earth and anybody who's different experiences a life of injustice and inequality so that the white males can all feel good about themselves. Um, You're a female, you're white, so you've got some level of privilege, but you're a female, you're a lesbian. Um, Talk for a minute maybe about I guess I guess that sense of both privilege and inequality.
2: Um yeah, I had an experience the other day where I was in communication with um someone in a position of authority and I was asking questions about why things were the way that they were and and their response back to me, you know, it of course was a white male and it just the response back to me infuriated me because his response back was that he needed to confer with two other white males in a position of authority about something regarding um, something that affected me personally. And I I'm composing this text message because we were communicating back and forth via text, And I asked Kelsey to read it. And she was like, Ooh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe don't say that. Maybe, maybe, you know, phrase it differently. And, and part of the reason was, because I'm, I'm a female. If I had said, if I had said what I wanted to say and I was a, a male, nobody would question what I had to say. Nobody would make me feel bad for saying what I said. It just would be accepted. But because I'm a female, we play this game of oh, don't upset, don't upset the power. Don't, don't make some guy feel like he's less than, cause they've got all the control. And and then talking to one of my coworkers yesterday, just kind of bringing up the conversation, and she she said the same thing. She's she said it's true. We do we have to censor what we say. We have to be careful with what we say. And I'm not claiming to be educated by any means. I I know that there are things that I'm still biased about that I may not even be completely aware of. I'm just sharing a tiny bit of my perspective, and I cannot imagine. My skin color playing a role in every aspect of my life. Yeah, I can't. I can't.
1: Yeah. So, so George Floyd um, is just a just a human being who, up until that moment, there was nothing significant or special. Just like the rest of us, just a just a human being out there living his life, making good choices and bad choices, like all of us do. All of us are messy and complicated. So he dies, and now. Because his death is so atrocious and it's recorded, thank God, like we live in an age now where the injustices at least have a chance of being recorded. Because for every one that's on tape, there's got to be 50 that don't make it, right? And uh, so it happens to get recorded. And um, the officers, man, the, the look on their face, like they just didn't care. They didn't care. The the, uh, the, the Asian police officer and the officer that had his knee on, on Floyd's neck, just the look on their face was just dismay. Who cares? Um, and, and since that moment, other videos have surfaced of um, African Americans with police officers doing abuse. And we all know it happens. We know it happens every day. And, and we've watched videos. I've seen videos where just an innocent black man and black woman couple are in their car driving They get pulled over. The cop comes up to the window and says, can I see your license and registration? And when the black man reaches for his license and registration, the officer lets five bullets off from his gun into the man's chest and he just dies right there in his car while his wife is recording it um, and and crying and screaming hysterically. Um, This moment in time, we've known these things are going on, but it's almost like we collectively have reached a space where all of us regardless of skin color we're awakened enough we're almost awakened enough to go it has to stop it has to end here and and so from this moment of of George Floyd's passing now we have all these riots and protest I'm just curious kind of your thoughts on the demonstrations that are happening and um, what your thoughts are on protest and riots and what, what what it's saying about where we're at as a people?
2: I think it's saying that things need to change and that people are fed up. Um, and I can't begin to say one way or another, like I, I have no right to say it's the wrong way to respond because it hasn't personally affected me. And so I, you know, I, I think that it's gone on for so long and people are, tired of feeling unheard and not listened to and not seen that of course there's going to be a reaction and I think that sometimes the only way change is brought about is by a strong reaction no I'm not condoning violence um, and I think I think it's important that we just start taking a look at what is it that we can do um, you know I I I've thought about protesting, um, but honestly, there is a tiny bit of me that's scared um, because I don't want to get wrapped up in the situation and I don't want to get hurt. And so it's easier and safer for me to avoid doing anything, which is like, it's so hard. It's a form of condoning the actions of other people. Not yeah. saying anything, not doing anything, is no better than pretending it doesn't exist.
1: You know, people are saying like doing this damage. Um, so, so as I'm watching, Caucasian people look at these riots take place, and from their from their pedestal, say like this violence. Oh, this is that's criminal activity. That's shame on these people. Like that's a it's a horrible way to carry out your your dissent. And then I go back to fucking 1776, right? And fucking white people decided to take other people's private property and throw it into the uh, to the Boston waters, and uh, and have what is known as the Boston Tea Party, which involved deeply doing damage to personal property, which involved rioting. Uh, So when we white people do rioting, we don't give we don't give two licks. That's great. It's helpful. It's useful. And when black people riot, shame on them. Shame on them. Um, certainly criminal activity should be, um, that should be held accountable. And if somebody burns a car, if somebody, somebody does damage to property or human life, they absolutely should pay the price. When I watch these people busting in the windows of a private store owner and then beating the living hell out of the store owner, that, that isn't solving the problem. Number one, number two, two. We've always been told as little kids, and two wrongs don't make a right. When you damage someone else's property and hurt someone else's uh, health or kill them, at the expense of having your message heard, you've gone too far. At the same time, Martin Luther King, I think it was, said, "A riot is the language of the unheard." We have suppressed voices for too long. We've allowed injustices to be just, you know what? It's just that's just the way it is. We just have to just, you know, deal with that. It'll get better someday. And and collectively, the African American community and I think collectively to some degree all of us have had enough.
2: So Bill, what what are your thoughts on the appropriate way to address the oppression without using
1: violence? Um the question is what what is effective? If I say what's effective from just a logical standpoint, I think yanking statues down and busting and building windows actually is effective. Um, I think we have to come to that reality. I think we have to understand that doing illegal activities, for instance, just going back to the civil rights movement and some of the stuff that happened there, um, when, pe- when, when a disenfranchised group begins to make life uncomfortable for the franchised group, the franchised group is often pressured into making accommodations so as to not be uncomfortable anymore. So the tactics work. Um, they're still wrong. Wrong from a doing damage to another human being who isn't directly responsible for the problem that you're trying to address. So, you know, you had Martin Luther King, you had Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King always talked about doing uh, peaceful protest so, you know, getting on the bus and sitting in the seat that you're not supposed to sit in and allowing yourself to be arrested. Um, but but again, it also makes the, the privileged uncomfortable. The bus has to stop. Cops have to come. Everybody's late to work or to the place they're getting to go. So again, I think it does get results that way as well. And I, and I think you have to keep in mind not trying to hurt another human being unnecessarily. I think that's part of the almost awakened mantra, right? Don't be a dick. And, and if someone's been a dick to you, you being a dick to someone else doesn't stop the fact that you were a dick. Um,
2: yeah, uh, we've been having tons of conversations with our kids about racism and and sexism and you know those kinds of conversations. And our kids are still pretty little, so they may not quite grasp it. And we live in a pretty sheltered community where they're not exposed to a lot of diversity. But we watched a show... Um that was on Disney plus called Ruby Bridges about a six year old girl who was so smart and was allowed to go to a school that was supposed to be desegregated. Um, but when she you know she had to be escorted by the police and um, just her story. And I can't imagine one being a six year old going walking through lines of protesters screaming at her. Um, you know, they, they showed, I I don't know how historically accurate it is, but I'm assuming it's pretty historically accurate. One woman screaming at her, um, that she was going to poison her food and she was going to die. And at one point this little girl quit eating all food that was homemade. She only wanted prepackaged food because she was terrified. And, you know, first day gets to the school and all of the white children have been removed from the school their parents because they don't want her they don't want their kids going to school with her and and just having conversations with our kids about okay how can you speak up when you see something that isn't right and what what are things that you can do what are things that you have control over that can help make the world a better place for other people it's 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 not easy it's not easy to have those conversations and it's not easy to empower um kids to speak up
1: um this isn't a white issue, right? This is a human problem. It it really does it really does rest within the box of tribalism and ethnocentricity, right? It really rests within the people who look and act like me are good, and the people who look different and act different than me are bad. And they're less than human. They it's it's us versus them. And <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, go ahead.
2: It's that dehumanization thing that we do, where we make yeah. people objects, so that we can make ourselves feel better when we do mean shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it starts at an early age, and and it and really, we're not born with it. Although I think maybe remnants of it, we are. But I think we could be raised in such a different culture that we so approach life differently. But. From an early age, we're being influenced by our parents, our extended family, our siblings, kids at school, teachers at school, TV programs, um, the way the news is told. It. I was listening to a podcast, and I want to get into a couple of topics here, but I was listening to a podcast because like, I've really been the last week just trying to absorb everything. Um, there's a New York Times pod, podcast called 1619. It's four episodes, and it has to do with different... Um, generations of racism. So going all the way back to 1619, then to 1776 and what the founding of the country was, uh, Thomas Jefferson tried to address slavery in uh, the declaration of independence and all of his cohorts shot him down and had him reword it. Um,
2: Wasn't he a slave owner and had um, like bastard children with one of his slaves?
1: And, and maybe I'm saying that wrong. I don't know if it was Jefferson. Or Alex, I'm horrible at history. Alexander Hamilton or whoever, but they were trying to address it. Yeah, and you're Someone. right, though. Yeah, you're right. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, yeah, that, that, not really the the pedal, guy on a pedestal that I thought from fourth grade history. Right. Um, but whoever it was that was addressing the, the Declaration of Independence, I should probably fucking push pause and go find the answer, <laughs> but I won't. Whoever it was, they, they wanted to address it right then and there. And Everyone else in the room said we will not proceed if that clause is in there. So take it out. Another thing I learned, Abraham Lincoln, this one I'm sure of. It's definitely Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the United States. I'm a huge Abraham Lincoln guy. I read a bunch of biographies on him as I was a young adult uh, and even an older teenager. Um, I always looked up to Abraham Lincoln for what I believed through the stories I were told that he stood up for those who were less privileged. There's only some truth to that. So one of the stories I learned this week for the first time no one had ever told this to me in all the books I'd read. When Lincoln was contemplating um, the Civil War and he had already talked to Congress and had already they were already on board to some degree, um, the slave issue was obviously at the forefront of, of that whole episode. And the decision that Abraham Lincoln, as President of the United States, came to with Congress's approval was that we're going to fight this Civil War, we're going to free uh, we're going to free all the slaves, but then the moment they are free, Congress has approved every single one of them um, having a paid one-way ticket to some other place besides the United States of America. So um, Abraham Lincoln, with all that set in place, ready to go, that's the plan. They're going to carry this out. And you and I, 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 mean, I'm, I, I bet I'm, you're hearing this for the first time too. Mm-hmm. Um, why in the hell don't we learn these things, right? You have to go find the truth. The truth isn't handed to you. Nobody wants you to have the truth. You have to go fucking find it. Um, the truth is that Abraham Lincoln invites five members um, of the african American elite community now that's a shaded term because they're still not anywhere near as privileged as the white elites but they're but they're more privileged than the poor black um, um and so Abraham Lincoln invites these five people in who are well-known, uh, well-spoken for, they're educated, um, they're doing well in their life, right, for a black man. And he brings them in and he runs the plan by them. You guys, here's the plan. We've got, we're have got. we going to go to the Civil War. We're going to get you guys your freedom. We're going to get all of the um, African-American or black community. We're going to get you all freed. You're no longer going to be slaves. The moment that happens, the moment we win and that happens, um, we are going to send, Congress has approved, we're going to send every freed slave uh, to some other place. If you're choosing, it's already paid for. It's done. We're just sending you away. And then told them that they were responsible for this war that's about to happen, which is bullshit. Um, yeah, that's, they so turned it down.
2: Actually, of course.
1: Yeah, they, all five of them said, like, no, like, we believe we believe in the ideals that this country is built on. And we want to see it through. We want to help this country and our people to get to a place where we get to enjoy America for what it's supposed to be. Every day you and I would stand up in class and put our hand over our hearts. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation uh, under God, indivisible um,
2: with liberty, liberty and, and justice,
1: justice for, all. for all for all
2: Yeah. for all for all. It was actually Um, Thomas Jefferson. Um, This says he owned more than 600 slaves. He freed two while he was alive. And I'm not sure how this works, but seven more after his death.
1: Probably his paperwork. Um, When he died, he said these seven um, servants are to be free and not be resold.
2: He wanted, so he did draft something in the, um, wanted something in the Declaration of Independence. And let's see, he It says that he believed that African-Americans were a lesser race um, and that they should be considered property, but that they still should have some rights. Um, Let's see, there was something else that was really interesting. He wanted to buy... In 1824, he proposed a national plan to end slavery by the federal government purchasing African-American slave children for $12.50 dollars raising and training them in occupations of freemen and then sending them to another country, Santo Domingo. Um, and then it says that after the death of his first wife it's believed that he had a relationship with a slave at Monticello. he helped them gain some freedom but he was he owned over 600 slaves
1: right right he's advocating improvement and... He's part of the problem.
2: Still wanting to keep the status quo.
1: Yeah. Um, so going back to the riots, I, I'm i speaking from a privileged status when I say that those things are wrong, right? That on some level, I don't know what I would do if I'm the one being traumatized to some degree on an essentially daily basis. And if I'm ever affected directly by the atrocious moments that these things occur. Um, I I I think at the end of the day, we've got to recognize that if we build a system of inequality, then what comes with that is the pain and hurt of people expressing itself. I saw, you probably saw the old man in the cane in Salt Lake City get pushed over. Mm -hmm. You probably saw the, uh, the 75 year old man protester, by the way, white men. And so, you know, us white people when we see the white guy pushed down that's a fucking big deal right well we all ought to be outraged anytime a human being is traumatized unnecessarily but this 75 year old man who's who's a regular protester but by no means deserves this treatment has these young cops push him down and immediately gets his head and bleeds profusely out of his ear it is pouring I'm watching the video it was pouring out of his ear and the one cop who tries to go to his side is shoved back in line by his fellow officer. Don't know if it was the guy in charge or just another peer, but this again, tribalism of us and them. Like why doesn't somebody shove the offending officer out of the way and help the old man? Um, why doesn't one of the officers shove the cop off of Floyd's neck and say enough, help this man? Um, Something has to change. Um, I saw where the police and one of these riots in Minneapolis, they slashed all the tires of the protesters' cars in the parking lot. And their excuse was that we selectively did. They admit it. This is, I mean, you can, this is New York Times. uh, Snopes verifies that it's true. The cops slashed all the tires of all the protesters in the parking lot and claimed that they selectively slashed tires only of vehicles that had things within the car that could be weapons and thrown at the police officers and worried that people would use their vehicles as weapons. But if that's the reasoning you use, you can use that reason in any circumstance you want. Where couldn't you? Where couldn't you say that? Where couldn't you say we selectively slash the tires of the one and, and just to keep people from running us over in case they chose to do it? You can't base your punishment on what you think someone might do. You can't do that. And so we're in this moment where the police have got to wise up. They've got to say like, ooh, some of us are the bad guys right now, and the country is speaking out. Enough's enough. We, the good the good guys, because I think most cops are good. They're good human beings. I think authority sometimes gets the best of us, and I think the pressure to support and buffer the bad officers from getting in trouble causes a systemic problem. <clears throat> um, Your thoughts maybe on the police at the moment, like what, what are your thoughts, thoughts on cops? And, and again, I can't imagine in these inner cities, their job is near impossible and their life literally is in danger every day they get up. Um, your thoughts on the police.
2: Again, I, I, I speak from my cushy life. I I don't, I've never gotten to experience, you know, being a police officer. So I, I can't begin to know what, um, what it is they are going through or what what they are dealing with. I just, my very limited experiences is um, when Brandon and I were first married, um, he worked at the jail and some of the stories that he would come home with were sometimes riots break out in the jail because someone didn't get a piece of bread or because someone sat in someone's spot and so stuff, stuff happens and Sometimes it takes force to be able to control the situation, um, but I don't. I like you said. I think there's. I think there's a lot of good police officers out there. I think there are a lot of people that are genuinely concerned about other people and looking to keep our community safe and trying their best to um, to do that with with within their allowed bounds. But I think that you pointed on a really good topic that. I think sometimes people act out of fear and they do what they do to try and protect themselves um, because they don't know how to handle the situation differently.
1: There are, <clears throat> excuse me, there, there are incidents every day that could have created a George Floyd moment. Every day there are, there are things that are caught on tape that should outrage us into demanding change. And I was trying to think, like, why this moment? Why George Floyd? And, and as I watched the video, what I, first off, he doesn't want to get into the vehicle. He's claiming he's claustrophobic or whatever the reason. He doesn't want to get in the vehicle. And so the officers then place him on the ground and now put their knees, you know, put his knee on his neck. And, the, and at one moment, I think three or four of the officers are all laying on him. He's in handcuffs. He he's not going anywhere really. I mean, he could try to run and you got to, you know, you got to jog and catch him and put him back to the ground, but you're not getting away with handcuffs on your wrist. He's not trying to get away anyway. That's just silly. So he's not going anywhere. You're trying to get him into the vehicle, but by laying him on the ground and kneeling on him, putting all your weight on his neck, you're not doing any more efficiency at getting him in the car either. Like it's, in other words, the action of Putting your weight on an apprehended man who's in handcuffs um, is completely, un- there's no reason for it. It's unnecessary. There's no, there's no further progress made in the apprehension of him by laying on him or kneeling on him or putting your weight on him. He was more than willing to sit somewhere. He was more than happy to lay on the ground. I didn't see anything in that video that told me that he was going to try to run you're just, you're just pissed. You're just angry that you can't get him into the car. You're just angry that he's resisting going into the car. And, and so now you escalate the force to a level which is completely unnecessary. It didn't help you accomplish anything. I understand tackling somebody if they're running away. I understand the force that's needed sometimes to shoot someone because they're shooting back or because they have a hostage or because they're putting someone's life in danger somehow, some way. It was completely unnecessary what happened and I had a I had an African-American come into our store two days ago he is from a police family his grandmother is a, um, a sheriff's deputy and he is going into the police force himself and so him and I had like a just a half hour conversation great conversation um, articulate young man intelligent young man educated young man um, going into the police force and is man of uh, of color, a person of color, and we had this interesting conversation about tribalism and and him wanting to. He, he said, "My goals. My goals since I was in seventh grade was to see uh, as myself as a minority enter into the police force, so that fellow police officers could be more aware that I'm just another human being um, as a black man, and to also be one more good cop." among the force and just, um, you know, talked to him at length and wished him the best of luck. But I can't imagine right now being a person of color entering the police force. Like what an insane moment in time to be essentially on both teams. Right. Kind of a crazy moment. Um, again, I think most police are good people or at least like the rest of us just mixed, mixed, just a mixed messiness of good and bad. You know, we're unhealthy. We have shadows, And we, generally speaking, are good and kind to people most of the time. Um, But there is there's an issue that needs to be fixed. I I had another podcast I was listening to. I want to play a little bit of audio from this one, and I want to talk a little bit about systemic racism and some of the excuses that are given. And I think we can maybe kind of finish off here on this on this area. And and I want to know too, Mikkel. You and I are both white. We're Caucasian, and here we are having this topic. We it's really not our issue, other than we need to. Um, I think lift up the voices of those who are disenfranchised in the African-American community and recognize that it's not our place to be the experts or the voices of reason on this issue. Um, We're just adding our commentary. But I was listening to the TED Hour, TED Radio Hour. the, The episode is Confronting Racism. And there's a little section here that talks about the data behind whether people of color have access to the same privileges as those who are Caucasian. And I want to know before I play this, I was just listening this morning to something else. And they said like um, an African-American woman is three times more likely to die during childbirth than a a white woman Um, in New York city. I think the number is 12 times more likely by the way, that's insane by the way. We, in 2020, we think of giving birth as like pretty much the, a safe medical procedure that's happening. And we know that there's always little risk in things. That's, that's why there's doctors and nurses around. Um, but 12 times more likely that points to something. And so here's the podcast that also shares a little bit of this, this data, um, the Ted Radio Hour Confronting Racism.
4: You know, I think about that time as a critical moment in my own life. And
1: And I I should set this up. She's talking about how she was suspended in school and she was treated appropriately in the suspension, but how so many African-American girls, the punishment for the same um, acts of disobedience in school are the punishment handed out is different and that she was lucky and it, it allowed her to finish her education and career and become um, become a, uh, an educated person with a good job um, and wasn't affected because of this incident.
4: Certainly one of those incidents that had gone a different way, there could have been a radically different outcome, not just for me at that moment, but certainly for other things that happened in my life. But unfortunately, that's not a story that's shared by many Black girls in the U.S. and around the world today. Black girls are seven times more likely than their white counterparts to experience one or more out-of-school suspensions, and they're nearly three times more likely than their white and Latinx counterparts to be referred to the juvenile court. A recent study by the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality partially explained why this disparity is taking place when they confirmed that black girls experience a specific type of age compression where they're seen as more adult-like than their white peers. People perceive black girls to need less nurturing, less protection, to know more about sex and to be more independent than their white peers. The study also found that the perception disparity begins when girls are as young as five years old, and that this perception and and the disparity increases over time uh, and peaks when girls are between the ages of 10 and 14. So, as you said in your talk, black girls in the U.S. are disciplined more often than white girls, but... It's not that that they're acting out more, right? Is is it that administrators are more likely to punish them? So oftentimes, you know, when we see the data reflect a disparity, you know, our inclination is to believe that they are in trouble more. But what we're finding is that their behaviors are interpreted as more problematic and the censure is immediate and harsher for them.
1: Um, We, you know, we're raised... I was raised with the story being that those of color were essentially causing their own problems. And and those were the stories that were told around my grandfather's dinner table. Those were the stories that were told in our family's backyard when aunts and uncles got together and sat in lawn chairs and had a had a cookout and talked about the politics of the world and talked about various issues and when racism would come up and when I was telling you earlier about the you know, three times more likely to lose your life during childbirth or 12 times in New York City, um, they even did data on patients of the same doctor. And even when patients, because you could say like, maybe it's access to healthcare. Maybe it's a, a piss poor hospital in a poor neighborhood. Like we can come up with all the reasons. And the reality is even when the patients have the same illness and are treated by the same doctor and facility People of color have worse outcomes, which tells you that it's a, it is a racism issue. And when I listen to this data about the the young girls, it's easy to say like, oh, she probably is in trouble more. Like that's the default position as I as a Caucasian jump to. And the reality is that, you know, that's that's not the case. That we are filtering the behavior of people of color differently than we filter the behavior um, of of white people and when you understand that slavery happens and when these folks are freed they're still looked down upon as less than their opportunities are less so here we are fast forward a uh, hundred and seventy years and these folks people of color is what I mean by that these folks um, naturally because of the oppression, were forced to gravitate towards poorer neighborhoods. So they certainly have poorer access to good education. They certainly have poorer access to healthcare. They certainly have less opportunity to advance themselves. And and I've heard in the last two weeks, I've heard white people say, you know, it's their problem to fix. All they gotta do is apply themselves at school. All they gotta do is keep their heads down, get a good education and get themselves out of the projects. All they have to do is pull themselves up by the bootstraps, put the effort in and succeed like the rest of us. Um, I, I don't think we, and I mean me too, even as I'm learning and educating myself and, and trying to be, um, trying to be the kind of human being who sees all humans as equal. And I, and I still have blind spots. There's this coming to grips with, We don't comprehend the uphill battle that they have. We why would we expect them to to have to work harder than us and succeed at it when the level of work we humans put in is the level of work? Like, in other words, we collectively, like, yes, there's a human here who applies himself more, and there's a human there who doesn't. But collectively, we put in a certain amount of effort. Um, as kind of our standard of what we, what kind of effort we humans want to put in to get something done. And why would we expect a certain segment of society to overcome that by working twice as hard or one and a half times as hard. It's natural that that's going to produce a struggle that so many of them struggle to overcome. Like um, I've said enough, I'd love to hear your two cents kind of on the uphill battle of, of the African-American community. And, whether it's their responsibility to get themselves out of the hole.
2: You keep asking questions I can't answer, Bill, because I'm not African American and I've never I, I have no lived experience to go from. And so I, I I keep thinking about two books that I have read. One is Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers.
1: Yeah, talking to strangers.
2: And the other one that I read was Outliers. And in his book Outliers, he talks about You know, what what is it that makes people outstanding? And a lot of it is kind of, I mean, for lack of better words, being in the right time at the right place, having the right connections, having the right family name, having the right resources, having, you know, the right opportunities. And, And I can't imagine not having access to some of those basic things. And and then expecting a person to just magically figure it out and be successful without having any access to the same privileges that I do, um, yeah.
1: If yeah, if we, if once you it
2: impossible.
1: Yeah. Or yeah, at the very for least, some people. Near, near impossible.
2: For some people.
1: My uh, my brother and I and my dad, we've been texting each other every morning talking about what's going on in the news and. Uh, I mean, you know, we were all, you know, we were all acknowledging that there's racism. I don't want to, I don't want to paint a bad picture for anybody, but it got to the point in the conversation where to try to help us have some sense of perspective. I said, Chad, you you know, you went to my brother, Chad, I said, Chad, you went to Toledo university. You, um, had access to an education. You had access to scholarships. You got good grades in high school. Um, you had internships with companies in the field that you were going to school for. You, you finish your education, you become an, an engineer. You're now the vice president of operations for a division of your company. Um, but if I dropped you, if I dropped you into Compton in, uh, in California and I had you born with, with dark skin and you're born in the middle of a, of a poor neighborhood You realize, right, like no matter how smart you are, Chad, no matter how hard you've worked, that the chances of you ending up as an engineer, as the vice president of operations for a division of a big company is essentially non-existent. It's it's not even fair to say it's slim. It's worse than that. It's essentially impossible. Um, so you're right. Like we're not people of color. We don't have that perspective, but I do have the perspective of a white person, which is we often tell these stories about people of color that they could just pull themselves up by the bootstraps because it's important for each of us to look in the mirror and to say like, I got to where I got to through my hard work, through my intelligence, through my determination, through my willpower. And I don't think we white people want to look in the mirror and go, I got lucky. I had a lot of opportunities other people didn't have. I have a lot of privilege that other people don't have because then that says something about us um, and that someone else could have also achieved what we've achieved. But I think we've got to get to a place where we completely all look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm lucky. I had opportunities that most human beings don't get and certainly that segments of society that are seen as less than me don't get and that I am privileged and we ought to use whatever privilege we have uh, again to lift up voices of those who are disenfranchised and to help their voices be heard so that we can start to get the reform because we can't we can't get rid of racist and we can't get rid of prejudices and biases but we can create systemic reform that puts in place consequences for when that shows up in the public arena, um, when that shows up in the public space or the private sector, when it shows up in someone's business or it shows up on the streets of our cities and towns. Unless
2: you vote for Trump again. And then, you know,
1: yeah. And and if you vote, yeah. And man, it's crazy to sit back and watch. I mean, I just
2: watch, I just, I just, from my limited perspective and I, I, I don't get involved in politics. I, I'm not educated in the political world or with what's happening, which is again my privilege because I can choose to turn a blind eye to it. But I, just watching briefly him try and repeal rights for transgender people in the
1: workplace and for LGBT in the people. middle of this moment to take another disenfranchised group and to say "fuck you," that that. <laughs> Any other president, you can name any of them. It doesn't pick the most rate. Pick the second most arrogant, uh, unhealthy president we've ever had in our country.
2: But Bill, he's done so much good.
1: Okay, pick pick the second most prejudiced, unhealthy president. And when the George Floyd thing happened, he would have stood in front of a camera. Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. Uh, it doesn't fucking matter which one you pick. Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, what, you know, whatever pick them when, when this moment happened, they would have stood up in front of a camera and they would have said, um, this is not acceptable. This is a horrible moment that shines a light on the injustices of this country. Um, it would have, they would have stood up and said like, we have to do better. Let's unite. It would have been a great moment. It was a great opportunity for the president.
2: So I texted you Um, have you ever heard of Jane Elliott? No. She was a school teacher, and um, she conducted a a famous exercise for her class the day after Martin Luther was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr., in April 1968. So she was at home watching the news. She was getting ready to do an activity for her, I think they were eight-year-old's, She's getting ready to do an activity um, about Native Americans and and she's watching the news. And um, she says that she vividly remembers a scene in which a white reporter pointed his microphone toward a local black leader and asked questions like when our leader, John F. K. was killed several years ago, his widow held us together. Who's going to control your people? And she said she was just deeply bothered by that. And so she decided to come to, to do this exercise where she, you should look her up, find her YouTube video. She divided her class based on their eye color, blue eyes, brown eyes, because she had a mostly, I believe, white class. And then she, she just wanted to, her kids to understand discrimination. And um, so I can't remember which group, I think it was kids with blue eyes were treated better than the kids with brown eyes. And she the the brown eyed or the blue eyed kids started being super mean to the to the brown eyed kids to the point where she had to end the exercise, but um, the kids then had to write about it and some of their compositions were shared in the local newspaper, both positive and negative. Um, she said she wanted to give her small town all white students the experiences of walking in a colored child's moccasins for a day, uh, so check her out. She's, she's done some workplace discrimination trainings, um, super fascinating. I think for me, it, it's what can I do on my part? And it's being educated and it's listening and it's speaking up when I see something that isn't right. No matter, like I have to get over the fear of what's going to happen to me. Um, because it should be about the collective. What's going to happen to us if I don't do something.
1: Yeah. There's no doubt that things have gotten better. By the way, I've got her pulled up. I'll share a link for listeners in the sort of the notes for the episode so that people can go there. Um, there's a, there's like a 50 minute video that's pretty deep on this stuff. And then there's a lot of 10 and 30 minute, you know, 10, 20, 30 minute videos that synopsize kind of what was going on. And so I gather the gist of it. I, I think anytime that we can see and feel inequality and be taught that all of us are human and that we ought to care for and be compassionate towards the human race, as well as other living life forms and this planet, um, I think those are all tools to help us have the right framework to be responsible, healthy, contributing, productive adults. Um, But I'm sitting here watching, not watching, but looking at the, 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 the Jane Elliott videos here, and I'll make sure that I source some of those. We've got to, this is getting better. It's certainly better than it was in 1850. So we're getting there, but damn, it's slow and it's too slow. And a lot of innocent people are dying in the process. It's time for change. It's time for some systemic reform to fix this, to put us on a better path to to addressing it and correcting these things.
2: I think you're you're always going to have pushback, though, you know, I, I not to excuse it in any way. I just think of, you know people saying, Saying what you pointed out earlier, like they bring it upon themselves. And so even if there's systemic reform, even if there is massive change, you're still going to have people who believe things differently, partly because of how they've grown up, partly because of their lived experiences and partly because they're just fucking assholes.
1: Yeah. And, and when you're, when you're a human, it's natural within us to try to protect our privilege, to protect our advantages it is crucial to our survival. It's evolutionarily built in to try to protect our advantage over groups of people that are different than us.
2: We got to evolve.
1: Yeah. <laughs> They're talking. Go, go ahead.
2: I-, I think that it's like, if we're all doing well, then we're all doing well. But if you're, if, if one person's got more resources than another and there's not this collective, like, concern. I don't, I don't know.
1: I don't know. They're talking about how it's the woke culture that's leading this moment. Um, I actually smile when I see that. I know it's used as a snarky term by those who are oppressed and it's not the right word by those who are resistant um, to this change. You can see, like, again, I'm not saying everybody who voted for Trump is this way, but you could see there was a culture of people going, I can see I'm losing my privilege. I want to vote for a person who helps me keep my advantages. Um, But I smiled when I see the word woke culture is what's leading this because I think that's the key. The key is for all of us to be pushed into, to be nudged into some sense of being almost awakened so that we can start to perceive the data for what it is, rather than trying to maintain our comfortable beliefs, and we can begin to challenge ourselves to learn what the world really looks like without all the polished narratives, without all the fluff and biases going on, and we can begin to lift humans who are less privileged than us up. Um, help all of us see each other as the human race. Like we we say it's race. African-Americans are a race. Um, People in uh, Islamabad, that's a race. People in um, Israel is a race. No, our DNA is all the same. We're all human. It's it's time that we just stop letting shit happen and just go like, ah, whatever. That's a Wednesday.
2: Yeah. I saw this thing on Facebook where um, somebody posted a meme and it said, you know, one of the ways we we can get rid of racism is instead of the news headline saying a black man shot by a white cop, like a guy was shot by a police officer. We start removing some of those labels that we constantly use to attribute um, and just start, con- you know, like you said, considering each other as part, like we're just humans.
1: The, uh, the Ted radio and I'll share this last thought and then whatever, whatever else you've got, if you want to go another direction or talk about something else we can, and then kind of your closing thoughts. But in that Ted radio hour, they talked about the NFL and there are plenty, you know, if you're a a black athlete um, the NFL will value you based on your ability. So there are plenty of um, black players in the NFL. They also experience racism, but they do but they have, I think, a fair shot to make the team and to contribute and to start, um, at least for the most part, but they still experience racism. They talked about quarterbacks and they talked about how we humans, but specifically the media, has a way of labeling black quarterbacks and white quarterbacks. White quarterbacks, when they're successful are always it's always said that they're intelligent. It's always said that they study um, extra hard or extra long that they put in preparation, um, that they, that they put the time in to get to where they, they are. And then when black quarterbacks are experienced success, the labels are that they have freakish ability, that, um, that they are, uh, physical specimens that they, uh, ha- essentially have this born or god-given ability there's very little conversation about their intelligence while we all recognize to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL no matter what color of skin you are you have to be pretty damn smart and you have to put a lot of preparation in and you have to work hard and you have to be in shape um the labels that the media apply to these the same position but based on color of skin is so different and I've watched it I've sat and watched quarterbacks, and again, you won't know these names necessarily, but Warren Moon, who played in the 1980s, he was a black quarterback for the Houston Oilers, and there was never any conversation about his intelligence or his preparation. It was always his ability that he was born with. It was always his muscle and his strength and his physical attributes. Um, Every place in our society, we can do something different to start to make a difference. And as you point out, We can just use universal labels that apply to all humans and we can remove the labels that, that differentiate us from them. And I think that's a great place to start. And I think that's a great thing you pointed to.
2: Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I can add is just, we need to keep having these conversations. We need to have the conversations with our families and with people that we come in contact with. We need to educate ourselves. I I've seen a a list of books going around on Facebook that, um, help point out our privilege and, um, aspects of racism that I'm sure that I don't understand. And, and so I, I would encourage people to, to start reading and, you know, start asking yourself questions about things that you can do, uh, on your own and, and then speaking up, you know, and I'm saying that to myself too. speak up when we see injustice, no matter, no matter what it is, We all have to do better. We all have to care about each other more.
1: Amen. Anything else from you? Any other thoughts? Yeah. No,
2: I, I, yeah, I, I watched Just Mercy. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: Yeah, we watched it in the theater.
2: That was an amazing movie. And I get to just, mm -hmm, to go along with some of the books, you know, Ruby Bridges was a great movie for our kids to watch. Um, Another one that I watched, I can't remember the name of it. I'll have to google it and text it to you but it was a book about or i mean a movie about interracial marriage in the 50s or 60s um a white guy marrying a black woman and their struggle and you know they were separated had forcibly separated for like three years stuff that we can't even imagine i can't even fathom that happening to me you know and we just i think it's important that we we watch some of those movies so we get a glimpse of what other people have experienced.
1: Yeah, just watched uh, or just listened to a podcast about a 14-year-old black young man who was drowned in a river in the 1800s because a group of white men saw his behavior as being too um forward with a white girl in their community. You know, and he probably just said hi and even if he did flirt, what the hell? Like, like why do we in 18, again, it's just the insanity of, yeah, the insanity of taking a kid's life. 14-year-old kid. I've got a 14-year-old son. He's just a kid. Just a kid. 14, if, to have a 14-year-old drowned in a river because the white community saw him as too forward with a white girl. So hey. thank, thank God we're better than that. But man, we've got a long are way we? to go. Are I think, better? I think, well, I think we are in that there are still people who would do that shit today and still do, Right. Um, but at least, at least we, at least we don't give tacit approval and permission and turn a blind eye to it, at least not to the degree that we did then. Um, insane. I, I um, I just, I guess I would just end just saying like, we have to get better. It's gotta get to better. better. We have to do better and we can, and we should, and, uh, and we're going to. Okay. I uh, appreciate you being part of the conversation this morning, Mikkel. Hope you're doing well yeah. and hope life is good. Um, everybody else, check out almostawakened.org. Check out the um, resources in the episode. I'll just—if you got anything, Mikel, I'll certainly share this Jane Elliott. But anything else on your end, shoot me. Uh, shoot me a link, and I'll just put a ton of material so that listeners can, if they want to dive into racism and systemic racism specifically, that we can all begin to educate ourselves better because. Again, the truth will not be handed to you. You have to go find it. You have to want to go search it, Um, but it's there if you want it. Um, Anyway, have a great day. Love you, and uh, talk to you soon. Okay, I'll end it there. Uh, Anything else from you? Okay, have fun.
2: Nope, have a good day.
0: Take it easy. Yeah. this has been another almost awakened episode check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode for coaching opportunities or extra support visit no-nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.